Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutil, and I'm talking from the Alan Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. It's fair to say that academic life has been transformed over the past 50 years, much like Canadian life as a whole. Since we talk to university professors most of the time on this podcast, I thought it would be a good idea to pause and consider how their social lives have changed over the years. Professor Donika Belil, with the help of Kira Mitchell, wrote an intriguing article in the Canadian Historical Review in 2018 on a subject similar to this. It examined the social and intellectual compact of what could be called academic couples through the life of one woman, Mary Quayle Innes. She was the wife of Harold Innes. And she did this through a compelling lens, looking at how the contribution of women made a difference in the lives of those males who were professors. I reached Professor Belil at her office in the University of Regina. Danica Belil, welcome to the mic. Thanks. It's great to be here. I think of you as a scholar of business, and particularly how business shapes culture. I remind our listeners that your first book was Retail Nation, Department Stores and the Making of Modern Canada, and published at UBC Press. This article was a bit of a departure. What prompted you to take this route? I became familiar with Mary Quayle Innes when I was doing research for that book, Retail Nation, because she had written a series of short stories in the 30s that criticized department stores. And so I came across her through that research, and her name always stuck with me because I had found her short stories so compelling. Then when I went to start my next book, which is on the history of consumer culture, I I looked at her archival records to see what sort of drew her to write about department stores in the 30s. And I realized that she had written in her diary every single day from the, her age of 16 all the way to the age of 71. And so, and she had given all of her diaries to the University of Toronto. Um, so I was reading in her diaries for reference to going shopping and to department stores when I started to see a really interesting theme emerge, which was all of the work that she did for her husband, Harold Innes. And I became so compelled by that theme that I ended up pursuing it as a standalone article. So who was Mary Quayle Innes? Mary Quayle was born in the southern United States in the late 19th century, and she she was a daughter of middle-class parents, I would say. Her dad was a telephone engineer. She did her BA at the University of Chicago, and as she was doing her BA, she took a class uh, in political economy, and her instructor was Harold Innes. She would have been in her late teens, I think, or early 20s when she met him. They got married in 1921 and moved to Toronto. But then she she continued to write her whole life. She wrote around 88 short stories that were published, and one published novel, mm-hmm. uh, four historical texts, several historical scholarly articles. And she herself uh, received two honorary PhDs. Did she do graduate work? She did not, no. Oh. So what's your sense of what she was like? What would having tea with Mary Quayle be like? <laughs> Well, uh, people have said that she was very quiet, but also very witty, Mm. and um, she was extremely intelligent. She read um, every day of her life, I think, and she was also very gracious and kind. Um, She is remembered for always listening to people's stories and being very caring, and she, she had four children, 
And what really struck me when I was reading her diaries was that she made so many, she made so many things for them. Almost every day she was making a, a sweater or, you know, a, a skirt. She made uh, stuffed animals for her kids. She, she just seemed to be constantly giving of herself. So I think if you had tea with her, you would find her to be very smart, very astute, and also probably very considerate, too. And she had time to write. Somehow, she, <laughs> she made somehow <laughs> she made she made time to write. Yeah, she when her kids were very small, which she had her first child in the early 30s, and then she had four children at home. And they were all home until the early 50s, and during that time is when she did most of her writing. She ended up hiring, I think they would be called mothers helpers today, mm-hmm. uh, people who would come in and look after her kids so that she could do other work, and so she would she kind of set aside a space in her home that she lived in a couple of different homes during this time. And she always set aside a space with a desk and uh, she would write while these uh, mother's helpers came over. And that's how she did it. What was the role typically of an academic, an academic wife in those days? We're talking about, (laughs) we're talking about the twenties, thirties, forties. Harold Dennis dies in the early 1950s. What was, what was an academic wife? I think it differed according to person. But in general, there was, this, there was this term called faculty wife. And the idea was that if you married a scholar and were a woman, your role, it could be, and it often was supposed to be, was to support your husband in his career and his scholarship. And so some women, you know, did not become faculty wives in the formal sense, even though they were married to a professor. But there was a very strong pressure exerted upon a lot of these women to sort of take over the administrative parts of their husband's lives, as well as the social side of it. So, um, you know, attending functions and hosting at their homes and so on. And a lot of women also did a lot of research assistance for their partners. Um, And they sometimes graded their partner's papers or their, uh, no, the students of their husband's papers. They would write lectures and they did all of their typing unless their husband was able to secure typing assistance through their work. So, of course, this is all unpaid work, of course. Yes, yeah. Um, and so that was what it is, a faculty wife would be known as that. And it was similar to a minister's wife. So if you've heard that phrase, minister's wife, mm-hmm. in relation to the Protestant churches, um, the faculty wife took on much of the same role. But their husband was a professor. Your article goes further than that. Your, your, your article says that... Um, Mary Quayle Innes's contribution to Harold Innes, Harold Innes's work was so substantial that it actually contributes to his celebrity. Yes. What kind of work did she do for for Harold? Well, it changed throughout her lifetime, and of course, all the evidence that I'm talking about comes from her diaries. And so, in her earlier diaries from the 20s and 30s, uh, in the 20s, they didn't have children yet. And she did a lot of research assistance. She went with him on uh, research trips. She uh, did field work. I'm not exactly sure of what that entailed, but she um, she supported her husband on research trips. And she would go to the archives and take archival notes. Mm. She would go to the library and take notes on published texts. So those are some of the scholarly things she did. And she did all the typing. She typed his dissertation. She typed his article. She typed his first book. And in when she was doing that, she was also editing as she went. So she would be 
making the prose flow more smoothly. She would be fixing any grammar and punctuation mistakes. Uh, she would be writing it out in full sentences and paragraphs and so on. So I get, she, Danica, I have to say, as one who's suffered reading Harold Innes for a long time in my life, <laughs> I cannot right. imagine what the prose would be like if it wasn't for her. <laughs> well, it is interesting. So um, her, after he died, Harold Innes left behind a lot of unwritten work. Yes. And there was, um, in the 60s, the, there were a lot of attempts to publish it. But a lot of people couldn't figure out what he was saying, or they couldn't they couldn't read his notes. And then it was only in the late late sixties, Mary Clonus turned her own attention to that unpublished stuff, that she was the person who brought it to the light of day, and it was published as a revised version of Empire and Communications. Tell us about Harold Innes. What's your impression of Harold Innes again through the eyes of Mary Quayle and, and her diary? Yeah, I would say that my impression might be different because I've you know, I know him through Mary Quillinus's writings. And I would say both Mary Quillinus's diaries and her short stories, of which there were almost a hundred of them published before Harold passed away, uh, her short stories were very autobiographical. Uh, so she wrote a lot about domestic life and marriage and so on. Between her short stories and her diaries, I would say that Harold Innes was a very absent figure in her life. His schedule really, uh, I wouldn't want to, I guess not dictated, but set the terms for Mary Collins' own daily schedule. Her life was completely organized around his working routine so that um, when he was home, he was a real presence in the home, whether he was, you know, having dinner with the family or in his study after dinner. And then when he wasn't home, uh, Mary Collins ran everything. And then in her short story, she, she has a lot of short stories about trying to get sort of approval from this husband figure. A lot of a lot of conflict that I saw, although it could be just reading for conflict, but... Well, and I just want to point out that uh, there have been three biographies of, of Harold Innes. Um, Creighton, Donald Creighton wrote a book uh, very early on. Uh, Creighton had a great deal of respect for, for Innes. Uh, mm-hmm. Havelock wrote another biography. Hire has written a third biography. So we, we know a bit about Harold Innes through that. That's why that's what makes your article so compelling is that, you know, we Innes' presence in Canadian historiography is so large uh, to be told that, well, you know, there's a there's a very important helping hand here who uh, who was a, a mighty writer in her own uh, right and uh, who, who made it possible for Harold Innes to uh, climb the heights that he did. I get the impression that a historian in the 30s and 40s worked at the office. And uh, unlike unlike today, where his faculty members tend to stay away from the office, in those days, you went to the office and you worked. There's... Um, they they had tea, <laughs> they had tea uh, in the afternoon at the University of Toronto. It's a very different environment than what we have today, isn't it? I think it is, from what I can tell. Yes, it was a lot more. The faculty was a lot more homosocial, in that they were predominantly white men, yes. and their staff were women. And um, so, I think the gender division of labor that existed in the house was replicated in the department, in the various uh, faculty departments. You, 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 you talk in your article about the work of David Black, who's already written about Mary Quayle. Mm-hmm. Well, how is your article different? I think the chief difference is that my article is based on Mary Quayle and diaries themselves. Mm. 
And I'm not sure if he had a chance to read the diaries yet. Uh, the diaries are very hard to read in that they're all handwritten. And the way that they're structured, you really have to uh, spend a lot of time reading them. It took me quite a long time to get through them, actually. Are the so entries I, long? Are the entries long every day? No, the, it's about a paragraph a day. But yeah, you just have to read them day by day. Yes. It's really hard to to skim them because they're all handwritten. So. You learned to appreciate her more as you read along? Yes, I certainly did. Yeah. Now, Mary Quayle's uh, occupation as, as a middle-class woman, uh, I mean, she didn't work outside the home like most middle-class women. Would she not simply fit the model of the average middle-class woman of the 30s and 40s? I, I think so. I, she was very comfortable. I, I don't know, comfortable. She was very much a mother and a wife. Those are identities that she adopted uh, quite readily. She participated in a lot of women's clubs, they were called. So every day she went out to, um, she was mostly interested in the literary pursuits. And so she would attend a lot of literary club events. And not sure if she was typical. Certainly there was almost, if you had children, you would either hire someone to come and look after them or you would look after them yourself. There were almost mm-hmm. no daycares. Uh, at all. And so a lot of married women, if their husbands earned enough money, they stayed home, looked after the kids. But she still had time to, I mean, we call it today networking. Yes. <laughs> she is networking, isn't she? Was she was a powerhouse. Uh, she was a yes. very social powerhouse. She was maybe quiet and unassuming, but she was constantly staying in touch with people. She was constantly meeting people. She wrote letters all the time. Uh, she stayed in touch with people for decades through correspondence, which I found remarkable. I don't know if that was the norm at the time, but her she was a prolific letter writer. So in addition to that, and then also attending all the women's clubs, plus all the faculty club meetings, plus some other events that we might talk about, she spent her mornings writing and then taking care of her children in the afternoons and, I guess, the lack of a better term, networking. She, I mean, you point out, of course, that she was a, a, a quality writer. She wrote uh, mostly for uh, Canadian Forum uh, in the 1930s and then moved to Saturday Night. I'm judging by your the very handy bibliography that you've included in the article. Uh, most, she was mostly writing for Saturday Night in the 1940s and 50s. Um, do you think that uh, had the rules been different, she would have become a historian on her own right, in her own right? That's a really good question. I'm I'm not sure. Her interest was, I think, uh, tended toward personal lives and experience, and she was very interested in literature. And I, at the time of the 30s through the 50s, the history profession was very much focused on politics, the economy. And I think one reason why there was this bifurcation from uh, between so-called private and public life in terms of the historical profession was that historians did not want to look at the history of what they called the private sphere. Yes. And so because Mary Quillinus, her interests ranged across what was then called the private and the public sphere. It's hard to see her just being happy as being a historian as it was set in the terms of that time period. She really pursued literature because it gave her a way to understand the so-called private sphere through um, kind of a broader take than maybe what historians would have done at the time. 
Yeah. It's worth pointing out. I mean, there there are, I mean, I'm sure I'll be corrected on this, but I'm not aware of any other uh, women writing at this period in the sense of writing uh, long pieces in Canadian history. Hilda Neatby is really the only one I can think of. I'm sure if we looked at the Canadian Historical Review and we'd probably find uh, a few names here and there. Uh, they've never been studied as far as I know. But Hilda Neatby... Uh, does stand out as uh, as a woman who's writing some serious history uh, in the forties and fifties. I guess she'd be the other side of uh, that uh, that public that public sphere. Yeah, yeah. How do you? I mean, so I want to come back to her life. I mean, she lived to a ripe old age, did she not? Um, she passed away when she was seventy-one. Oh, that's not that old. I think I have that right. She might have actually been older than that. She passed away in the early seventies. Did she live a happy life? Do you think? It's. I think that she. Judging from her diaries, she very much valued productivity, and she definitely got a lot done. So I think in that sense, yes, she was um, she was extremely prolific, and her children all, uh, you know, became very successful. She her later correspondence and diaries indicate that she took great pleasure from her children, her grandchildren, and she took great pleasure as well in all of her female networks that she had built up over the many decades in, the, in which she was a practicing intellectual. She spent a lot of time with her female friends as she grew older, and I think that that was very rewarding for her. There's, uh, I want to I move on to the, the, the issue of acknowledgments in books, and I don't think Harold Innes ever acknowledged her work. Um, we have a lot more biographies. We have biographies and autobiographies coming out uh, from Canadian historians. And your your article reminded me that collaboration and support has to be appreciated. Um, it's made me more curious about reading acknowledgments. I always read acknowledgments. I always find them to be very interesting. And I, I, I think, I mean, I think I normally go to acknowledgments very quickly as I open a book. I want to, I'm curious about what uh, the historian... Uh, uh, has been inspired by or what their background is in terms of, you know, how they wrote the book, what travels, literary and figurative, uh, have taken place to make this book a reality. Um, I'm just, just curious more broadly, moving beyond the issue of Mary Quayle, do you read acknowledgments? I certainly do, yeah. What do you think? I don't know. Personally, I'm starting to appreciate brevity in acknowledgments, I, <laughs> so, because sometimes acknowledgments can be five page long. Yes, they do. Go, um, they do can get they can get long. I yes. like a good one page long acknowledgment. That's my personal preference. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I. In terms of acknowledgments, it's really interesting. I should. I, it would be interesting to survey all of Harold Innes's acknowledgments and see if, if his wife appears in his earlier work. She only appears as quote my wife unquote. Mm-hmm. Uh, where he thanks her for typing uh, the fur trade, his first book. But um, certainly, I, I he I've seen her just thank her as my wife. But he will name other people who assisted him. So I thought that was interesting, and I think that there has been other research on acknowledgments in general from this time period where the wife is not named. I want to come back with uh, on the on the issue, and this is the the standard Champlain Society question about your sources. Tell us more about this diary. You say she wrote it every day, a paragraph. She, yes, every single day. Uh, there were only a few missing days. Uh, one of them was 
shortly after her first uh, child was born. And when Harold Innes passed in 1952, there were some missing days there, about a month missing. And almost every other day was accounted for with a short paragraph. Oh, and when she traveled overseas, sometimes um, she wrote in different diaries and some of those dates are not accounted for. I think those diaries may not have made it to the archives, although that's my own conjecture. Mm-hmm. But yeah, she wrote a paragraph and her diaries were very fact-based. And she only wrote down what she did that day. And I found them very interesting that way in that she was constantly recording her own accomplishments, whether it was, you know, just writing a letter and going to the store or you know, submitting a manuscript for publication. Is Harold Innes ever mentioned? He's, yes, he's mentioned, she refers to him as H, uh, capital H. Okay. And she sometimes refers to him as Had, H-A-D. It might have been a name she had for him. And he, he does appear, she, you know, they meet for lunch often at Simpsons downtown, right. the department store for lunch. They go to movies. These are more in the early, their earlier years. And she accompanies him to uh, university events and like graduations and banquets. And um, sometimes she'll mention if he's away, you know, H away. Mm. Mm-hmm. Has reading this diary changed your way of looking at uh, married couples or unmarried <laughs> couples for that matter? I've had some criticism on my on this article in the sense that perhaps I'm reading too much for gender conflict mm. and that it didn't maybe exist. And so I've spent some time thinking about that question uh, in terms of was Mary Quailinus happy, like you asked. And I think that she, she, she struggled with the norms of the day. I can see that she struggled with the gender norms of the day. She was very attuned to inequality, I think. Yes. Um, There has been empirical research on married people in academia and the the latest I could find only was in 1991, where there was a study in the United States done of married men in academia versus unmarried men. And it's cons- consistently found that married men with unemployed spouses have higher pay and usually greater prestige. And so I do think in academia... If you have a support person who has dedicated themselves to supporting your career, that you will, you will uh, achieve great success. You'll be more productive, obviously. <laughs> uh, I think it, you know everyone's circumstances are different, but I well, think you, productivity you, you, is enhanced. Yes. You've really lifted a veil on the work of a man that, even though we all struggle to read, we all admire. I mean, there's no doubt that. Harold Innes was a trailblazer in writing history in the, in the 20s and 30s and 40s, and uh, that his uh, his wife's role in making him a celebrity uh, deserves to be understood, deserves to be appreciated. So thank you very much for that. Thank you. I appreciate it. That was Danica Belil, the author of Mary Quayle Innes, Faculty Wives' Contributions and the Making of Academic Celebrity, an article published in the Canadian Historical Review in September 2018. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. 
please visit our website at champlainsociety.ca, where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's even a place to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's past. If you like this stuff, please let people know by using whatever social media you use. It would help spread the message, and we'd be really proud of your support. This podcast was made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded in the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University on November 18th, 2019, and it was produced by Michael Smith. Thank you, everybody, and we'll see you next time.